Our guest today might just be clairvoyant. In 2019, Jeff Kossoff's book on Section 230, the 26 words that created the internet, emerged just as that law's liability shield for online intermediaries rose to national attention. His next book, The United States of Anonymous, was released just as states started to consider online age and, as a side effect, identity verification laws. Jeff Kossoff's latest book is Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation. This one is about the right to false speech under the First Amendment, and, like Jeff's previous efforts, its release is perfectly timed. Whether it's the federal government pressuring social media platforms to remove speech deemed false by government officials, or states requiring platforms to carry speech deemed false by the platforms, or the Department of Justice prosecuting a former president for false speech, false speech that also, you know, might have formed part of a criminal conspiracy, legal disputes about falsehoods seem to be everywhere these days. Did I mention the conservatives who want to make it easier to sue people for defamation? And the progressives who want to make it easier to prosecute people for spreading misinformation? We've got a lot to discuss today. Welcome back to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Jeff Kossoff is an associate professor of cybersecurity law in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. I've read all three of those books I mentioned, and I'm a huge fan, and I'm delighted to have him here today. I'm also delighted to be joined once again by my friend Ari Cohn, free speech counsel here at Tech Freedom. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Thanks so much for having me. Always great to be with two of my favorite people. Jeff, where does the phrase, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater come from? And why is it a bad line, even if in some situations it is literally true? Yeah, so it comes from a 1919 Supreme Court opinion that has actually nothing to do with yelling fire in a crowded theater. It was the government's prosecution of a socialist in Philadelphia named Charles Shank, who was distributing flyers that made what I, I would personally judge as a pretty weak argument that the military draft violates the 13th Amendment. But he was making the argument and uh, he was prosecuted and the government made the argument and the Supreme Court agreed in a 9-0 opinion that the First Amendment did not protect him because his speech in a time preceding war posed a clear and present danger to national security. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, in justifying this prosecution, said, you know, the First Amendment doesn't protect all speech. For example, if you falsely yell fire in a theater and cause a panic, that would not be protected either. And, and he actually got that line from an example that a prosecutor had used in a very similar case that he was reviewing at the same time. So that's where it came from. And it really quickly, I guess, caught fire and uh, started to spread all over for anyone who wanted to justify restricting speech. 
you read it in legal briefs, you hear it on TV, you read it in the newspaper, pretty much any time that a lawyer wants to justify chipping away at the First Amendment, they'll make the argument, well, because you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, you also can't say or write whatever the speech is that they want to criminalize or impose liability. When in many cases, you actually can say that speech. And so it's really used as kind of a cheat code to get around what the Supreme Court has built up in the past hundred years is pretty robust First Amendment protections for a whole lot of speech that many, if not most people would disagree with. But rather than engage with, you know, does this fit within a narrow exception? They just say, well, because you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, you also can't spread COVID misinformation, or you can't you can't allege that an election was improperly administered when you you usually, if not always, can. Yeah, your book just gives example after example after example of a lawyer or politician using it. It almost reminds me of the kind of thing that people in the what we can call as a shorthand big disinfo world would label misinformation in the sort of mission creep that that term has gotten where it's a line that's not strictly false but is really misleading it almost seems like conventional wisdom sort of in all the wrong circles why do you think it has such staying power i think that it's easy to to use. I think so many people know it. And I, I think in many cases, it's true that I, th there are many times when you'll, I, I, I always encourage people, please don't, and my students especially, I tell them, please don't go to a crowded theater and start yelling fire. If you take anything away from this, e even if you don't get prosecuted for it, it's not a wise thing to do. So I think that because there can be instances where you could get a disorderly conduct citation, or there are false alarm statutes that it's very satisfying to be able to say, yeah, the First Amendment's not absolute, but that's not really an extreme position. No, nobody really challenges the fact that the First Amendment isn't absolute. I mean, Hugo Black may have been the closest person who believed that the First Amendment's absolute, but his colleagues didn't really agree with him on that. So I, I think we're pretty safe that nobody's going to say, oh, you can go perjure yourself and the First Amendment will protect you. And I actually wasn't even titling my book Liar in a Crowded Theater for the first year that I was writing, and it had a much more boring title. Uh, but it was as I was reviewing case after case where every lawyer was using fire in a crowded theater to justify a speech restriction that ultimately got struck down that I thought, oh, well, this has to be the title of the book because it's really become the proxy for anyone who wants to just say, well, let's ignore the First Amendment, because that's what it's really saying. The First Amendment protects many forms of falsehood, and you set out to justify and defend those protections in the book. On the surface, that might seem like a difficult task. Who's in favor of lying? But the book does such a great job of getting into all the faulty premises that exist underneath this urge for stricter rules or for censorship. So obviously you could spend uh, however long the, the, the book is at uh, 300 plus pages uh, digging into this question. But, you know, in brief, what's wrong with regulating lying? 
Well, so in some cases, it's actually fine. I mean, again, the example of perjury, there are certain narrow categories that, that I largely agree with, where I think, you know, there are certain types of lies that the courts have reasoned are outside of the scope of First Amendment protection. But for a sort of a broad exception to the First Amendment for false speech, there's a lot of different problems. Um, the first is that it will, the regulations and liability generally on false speech could really have a chilling effect on all speech because people aren't going to want to take risks of, e even if they know or they strongly believe or have reason to believe that it's true, you don't want to take a risk of being prosecuted or facing a frivolous lawsuit by a powerful person. So that, that that's one reason. Another is that there's, there's this idea that at any point in time, we can know everything that's true and everything that's false. And there are certain things where that's easier than others, but for the things that really get attention and controversy, we need some breathing space to have a debate. I mean, I, I think COVID is a great example where you think about the lab leak theory. And in the early days of the pandemic, that was considered to be completely wacky that it could have originated in a lab. Of course, it originated um, in, in, at a wet market. I mean, that that's what was the common knowledge. But in the United States, at least, the government wasn't able to prosecute people for presenting other theories. And now, I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of debate, but the lab leak theory, at the very least, is seen as more credible. I think also, remember, we were washing our hands for hours a day because the government line was that COVID is only transmitted via surfaces and it can't be airborne. That's something else where obviously that's not true now, but that required a whole lot of debate and discussion. So those are some reasons. Also, um, regulating falsehoods, even if you can define something as false and you don't care about chilling speech, it's not terribly effective. If, for example, for election misinformation, if you were to say, as uh, the governor of Washington state tried to do, uh, we're going to arrest any politician who questions the administration of our state's elections because, of course, our elections are so fair and properly administered. Does that really cause people to have faith in their election system? For for me, at least, that makes me more skeptical of the election administration if the government's threatening to prosecute anyone who questions it. And then finally, I, I think that there is something to be said for holding the listener accountable for how they react to speech. So there's this idea, this bizarre idea among politicians that Americans are all just stupid and they're going to, if they see misinformation on social media, they're going to believe it and they're going to uh, participate in an insurrection just because of what they see on the internet. And obviously misinformation does contribute to things like that. But I also think there's something about personal accountability that if you're going to believe the first thing that you read on the internet and you do something stupid, then, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, make people responsible for how they react. So I, and I think there are cases that really illustrate 
all of those principles. So those are just some of the reasons that I think we, we don't want to immediately start saying, let's broaden all of the potential areas of liability for speech. Let's stick with that last justification. And by the way, yes, the book has some great examples. I suppose for the woman who was actually hit by a car, this is not uh, not so amusing, but the case of the person who uses Google Maps blindly and gets onto some dangerous road because that's what Google Maps told her to walk on. Or the guy who sold a whole bunch of stock based on a headline in a stock ticker about a Supreme Court case that turned out to be mistaken. Those seem very intuitive, but I don't think anybody questions that we are in a time of turmoil or acceleration, you might even say, in our information ecosystem. A lot of people are very worried about the velocity which, with which falsehood can spread on social media. And while I am sympathetic with your view, take, say, X at the moment, people are freaking out about misinformation with the Israel-Gaza conflict. And I keep thinking, well, don't trust stuff from sources you don't know on X. Is that so hard? But there is a counter case. You know, the main thing we're hearing a lot lately is that there's a liar's dividend, right? Where if there's enough false information in the ecosystem, it's not that people believe the false stuff. It's that they can no longer trust what's true. And especially with AI that is coming up, and I, my sense from reading your book is that you're pretty sanguine about the, the rise of AI speech, but we're already seeing claims of, well, I don't trust this or that footage from a war zone because it could have been AI, which allows people to be skeptical about the stuff they want to not trust and accept what they accept. That's all a long-winded way of saying you know, is this time different? Are we finally hitting the point where you don't have to assume that people are stupid or ignorant, just even normal, intelligent people are just going to be awash in an information environment where they don't know what to trust? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a concern. I I also, so, so I, I don't dismiss the concerns about misinformation. I think it's very real. And I think there are a few things. First, platforms do have their own policies about filtering out garbage and obviously x has changed its policies and we're still seeing varying reports about its user numbers and its financial status but um i think part of that will play out in the market where if you get a reputation for just allowing all sorts of garbage out there then you might lose users, you might lose viewers. And uh, I, I also think that, so this is really near and dear to my heart. Uh, for my first seven years out of college, I was a journalist at a metropolitan newspaper that I think had about 400 journalists when I started, and now it's down to around 50. And there are thousands of newspapers that have shot down. And I mean, that's do you, there, there's a lot of different factors, but I mean, obviously they no longer have the monopoly on classified advertisements and department store ads, which is kind of what fueled their gigantic profit margins. And I think that is more of a concern to me that, and I, I think that figuring out a way to revitalize a healthy institutional media is 
a better way to go than to say, let's just start arresting people or finding people because they're not giving the government's official story. I don't, I don't think that really, I, I think, frankly, that could lead to more misinformation if you start doing that. And we've seen it in other countries. We've seen both authoritarian countries and Western democracies to a lesser extent that have in the past five years or so passed various fake news laws. And they haven't created these healthy information ecosystems. They've been used to put critics in prison, and they've also been used by governments to spread more misinformation. So I, I've been doing a lot of uh, press about the book, and it's normally with journalists who I've always thought really rely on the First Amendment and support it. And they've been really eager, largely, to just shred the First Amendment. They're like, well, misinformation is a problem. But and I say, well, but what, what if the government were to go after you? Oh, well, I don't spread misinformation. Well, that, that's, that's great. But, and you might agree with the current administration, but there might be another administration down the road that believes your fake news, believe it or not. There are some people who say misinformation is not a problem. And I, I don't share that view. I, I think it is. I, I just don't think that regulation and liability expansion is the best way to deal with it. And I also think that there, there also might not be a totally easy solution for this. And it, it's disappointing for politicians, some more than others, who like to just sort of put out a press release saying, ah, oh, I've got the solution for misinformation, and this is what it is. And it never is. But when, whenever I push back on that sort of thing, I automatically get the response, oh, well, you're dismissing the concerns. Like, no, it's just, I'm dismissing the solution. Well, what we often get, I'm thinking a little more on the left at the moment, but we'll turn to the right in a bit. This notion of this or that or the other effort so far, I don't like. But don't worry, we'll do it better. My plan for government regulation of misinformation is more targeted or more in good faith. And often it stands on a sales pitch that doesn't give the full picture. You know, we're just going to target claims that 5G causes COVID or, you know, the microchip is in the vaccine type of speech. And I... I heard you in another podcast say that you are standing up for the boring old school First Amendment. And I think you sell yourself short maybe in the branding there, but uh, I certainly agree with that impulse. So could you elaborate a bit more on really the slippery slope? I know that phrase gets a bad name, but but why can't we just, why isn't it just, if we just do it better. You know, we can get the government to do a targeted effort to oppose private power, which is what we're all worried about these days. And if it's just if it's just targeted enough, it'll work. Or maybe you think that's we might ultimately get there. I don't know. I think that the proposals all say, you know, I'm going to carve out health misinformation and figure out this novel way to regulate health misinformation. And I think there's a lot of problems with that, but the biggest is the definition. Who defines it? What, one of my favorite proposals on this is from Senator Klobuchar, who 
I should just give the caveat that I'm speaking only on my own behalf, not on behalf of my employer. And that is a bill that her and Senator Lujan proposed about two years ago called the Health Misinformation Act that carves out from Section 230 any algorithmic amplification of health misinformation during a public health crisis. And you think, oh, that sounds reasonable. It's narrow. It's only algorithmic amplification, which is pretty much everything. Um, and it's only during a public health emergency. But then you look down at the definitions and you say, okay, well, how how do you define health misinformation? It's like, oh, that's easy. It's the HHS secretary who defines health misinformation. Just one unelected government official who has all these political pressures, possibly lobbyist pressures, can define what is health misinformation. And it, it's crazy. I mean, the, to to give one person that power, but you've got to because you can't write a law saying this is what we declare as health misinformation because it's going to change. There's going to be new circumstances and someone's going to have to decide that. So I, I think that's really the biggest problem that I have is just that you're shifting the power of speech to a government official. And there are occasions when that has to happen, such such as you know prosecuting someone for perjury or uh, 101 prosecution for lying to a federal agent. But when you have it cover really broad areas like public health or politics, that that's where there's just too much of a temptation to to really use it in a corrupt or abusive manner. And when I raise concerns about this and other types of proposals, usually to people on the left, they say, oh, well, you know, Joe Biden's president. So I, I trust him that he's not going to do it. And it's like, well, I mean, I'm glad you have faith in his longevity, but he might not be president forever. And there might be someone after him who you don't trust. And it's just these blinders on. And, and I really think once you start to roll back these protections, even if you somehow got this Supreme Court to agree with something that the Health Misinformation Act is constitutional, which I don't think it would, but even if you did, then you've gotten rid of the, those protections. They're not coming back when you want them. And I try to remind people of that, and it doesn't really go very well. Maybe there are some people on the right listening to this podcast there there might still be like three of them i don't know who are feeling pretty good about themselves and in your book you have some lines that tickled that bone in me you quote david harsani sort of ripping on the european approach to speech and i'll admit i read that and go feel feel a little bit smug but we talk on this podcast a pretty good deal about the very false waving of the free speech flag a very hollow i think i'm mixing my metaphors uh by the by conservatives and the right they they are now trying to claim that they're sort of the free speech party and your book does a very good job of getting into some of those causes that they have picked up and explaining how the boring old school first amendment view does not support them so i'm thinking of defending section 230 I'm thinking of defending New York Times versus Sullivan, and I'm thinking of being highly skeptical about the Florida and Texas must carry laws. We've gotten into all of those on the podcast. I'm not going to uh, 
spell all of that out. Instead, I will treat it as a buffet for you to go ahead and you may pick one or two or all three. But where does the, I guess, quote unquote, you know, conservative free speech case go wrong with these issues? For the Sullivan case, I at least see a split among conservatives on Sullivan. I I see some who really kind of echo the Thomas and Gorsuch criticism that, you know, the media have gotten too irresponsible and we need, and uh, they make the false claim that until 1964, defamation was never considered to be a free speech issue when it was. There's good research that finds, in fact, that it was. And they, they also don't really recognize the potential, again, for more misinformation to spread if you start to expand liability for journalists and for others who criticize public officials and public figures, because it's often harder to rebut those, especially people with uh, deeper pockets. And, but there also are conservatives, I, I think, who have written uh, about, I think very correctly, about how this actually would be a really bad thing for conservatives if Sullivan were overturned. I, I think Fox, which it is an example where they just paid a very substantial settlement, they settled the eve of trial with Dominion, th their last hope. And I, I think they, my opinion is they probably would have lost anyway, but the only hope remaining for them was uh, showing that they did not act with actual malice. I think they somehow managed to clear that bar, which was pretty impressive. But that's the sort of thing where I, I think there's a lot of conservative media that really rely on actual malice, as there are li liberal media. So uh, I think it's pretty short-sighted, and I think it's a nice rallying cry, like, let's go after the New York Times by going after New York Times versus Sullivan. But I frankly think it's going to hurt Fox a whole lot more than it hurts New York Times. Well, I wonder, kind of as a meta point to all of this, if the whole before 64 defamation wasn't a free speech issue, if those people understand that taken to its logical conclusion all the way back to Zanger, you're just going to find yourself being prosecuted or sued for defamation for saying true things too. Yeah. Because that conception of defamation law actually doesn't require something to be false for it to be defamatory. And if that's the world they want to live in, well, I don't think they actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's why when when any party brands itself as the free speech party, I'm kind of skeptical because I think that's exactly the type of outcome. I, I think they also don't realize that if you overturn Sullivan, there's a whole lot of other free speech protections that are built on top of Sullivan, including protection for opinions, which I, I, I think, depending on how Sullivan would be overturned, I think that could even that that could even be at risk. So all of that makes me really skeptical of wh whether those efforts would really protect free speech. I think the net choice cases for Florida and Texas, that those are also, I, I think, on a very superficial level, I understand how the proponents of the Texas and Florida laws could say, oh, well, we're promoting free speech by making it more difficult for viewpoints to be moderated from social media. But I, I think they dismiss 
the very real concerns about the First Amendment ability of the platforms to produce a product that they believe best suits their consumers. And if they mess up, if they do too much moderation, not enough moderation, they should be able to pay the price in terms of losing consumers. But there's not, a, I, and I think Judge Newsom's opinion actually on, on that was incredibly well done. And he made a very strong conservative case for upholding the First Amendment right. Judge Newsom being the 11th Circuit opinion that was with the Florida law. And we had Judge Andy Oldham in the Fifth Circuit with the Texas law, and they reached conflicting conclusions, and it's now up at the Supreme Court. Sorry, Jeff, go ahead. When, when I get into debates about the Texas and Florida laws, I'm often told, well, you know, why would you want a corporation to have First Amendment rights? And I'm just thinking, okay, we're, we're going to get into this debate again. Um, and, and it's almost like on the left where they say, uh, Citizens United is the first time that a company has ever had First Amendment rights. Like, no, that's not true. Um, you, I, I mean, and you point them to New York Times versus Sullivan. It's like, what do you think the New York Times is? Is the New York Times a person? Is the New York Times a nonprofit? Like, no, no, it's a company. And it was an was, advertisement. Yeah, exactly. When people say oh, corporations shouldn't have free speech rights, they also don't understand what they're saying is that means not just like, actual cor incorporated organizations, but all organizations that are entities that are not individuals. So goodbye mm -hmm. ACLU having First Amendment rights, goodbye Planned Parenthood having First Amendment rights. What do you want? Yeah, exactly. So so I, I, I think there are very few politicians that I think really across the board will stand up for, again, what I call sort of the old school First Amendment. I mean, related to that is when they say, well, you know, the Texas and Florida laws promote the First Amendment by restricting moderation. And I, I really like to or I try to remind people that the First Amendment has a state action requirement and there are tricky issues. And I think jawboning is actually a really tricky issue that we need and hopefully we'll get more guidance for unless the Supreme Court creates like a 12 part test, uh, which I'm worried about them doing. But I, I think that overall, when we should look at, you know, is there state action? Is it a government regulation? Is it liability? Is it an executive branch official ordering something? That's going to be the First Amendment. But if it's Facebook or Twitter or TikTok saying, you know, we don't want you on our service, you might not like it. It might be an unwise decision, but it's not, as long as it's not something that the government is ordering or coercing, it's not a First Amendment issue. And I think when you start to use the First Amendment for other purposes, uh, for other political ends, that sort of dilutes the impact of, of the First Amendment when you've totally confused the debate and people don't remember sort of what, what the First Amendment is there for in the first place. You wrapped up editing of the book, I believe, in late 2022. And I did notice a spot or two where it, uh, a development occurred that was sufficiently mm -hmm. important in early 2023 that you worked it in. But it's hard to write a book that's actually so topical because so much is happening and a lot has happened since you probably had to put your pencil down on the book. 
the net choice cases were accepted for review by the Supreme Court. Maybe that's not that surprising. But the jawboning case that you alluded to has rocketed up in front of everyone pretty rapidly. The Trump indictments occurred, and we know that there's a First Amendment defense getting raised in those cases. Is there anything that as you sit here, you're just going, man, I wish I could have said more about or could have commented on or maybe even said something differently in the book, given all these recent events? Yeah. So as my publisher will attest, I tested the limits of making changes to the book. I mean, it, it was in proofs months and months ago. And I, until the very last, and when it's in proofs, that's like the final, what it looks like on the page. And you're really only supposed to make type changes to typos. I was figuring out ways to delete exact number of words to add in new developments, which the my publisher was incredible. I had a very patient publisher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, there was something else there. I had to cut out the exact number of characters with the exact spacing. But I was like, I've got to get this in somehow. And then finally, like once it starts printing, you're not able to get in. And that's the challenge of uh, writing a book about something like this. I think that if if I had a few more months, I definitely would have spent more time on jawboning. I was able to get some of it in for like a page or two, but uh, it also became such a big issue. Um, and it's also something that where a lot of parts of the book, I'm able to say, oh yeah, this decision was amazing. This is exactly right. Or this was the stupidest decision ever. And I think for jawboning, I don't know. I think in part because we have so little really good on-point precedent for jawboning, I think it concerns me more than it concerns a lot of people, but I also can see both sides of the argument being made. I think that the Texas District Court injunction was insane, um, but I and I think the Fifth Louisiana. Circuit... Oh, yeah, the Louisiana uh, injunction. Our, I, I think... Sorry, I'm dealing with... There was an, another crazy Texas... But I think the um, the Fifth Circuit, I think at least got it a little closer to what I'd like to see. But I think for jawboning, it's tough because one of the concepts I promote a lot is the marketplace of ideas. While it's imperfect, I think that it, it's better than a lot of other free speech models. But the marketplace of ideas relies on people being able, people and institutions being able to participate in putting information out there. And I think that the government is a should be able to respond to misinformation and put information out there. I think, frankly, the U.S. government over the past six or seven years has not done a very good job in forming messages. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I use the example of like the, the disinformation governance board as totally botched uh, uh, attempt at at least trying to respond but I do think that the government, if it sees information that it believes is false, should be able to call it out. I mean, that's part of the participation. But I also think the government should not implicitly or explicitly threaten um, platforms or even lean on them too much uh, to remove content. And I think it's a that we don't have a clear line there. And I think we we need it to be better defined and uh but but uh, i mean i what i don't want to see is some sort of ruling where you know the government can never put out a press release anymore that would be 
more dangerous because I think, but, but I, I also think that if the government's saying like, you know, hey, we don't like what, for example, what the Surgeon General did with the disinformation dozen, I think that's, that's a close call that I write about in the book because they're just putting out information. But at the same time, when you have right around that time, when you have two senators writing a letter about the disinformation dozen to Facebook and the other social media platforms, while at the same time they're pr proposing this carve out to Section 230, and they're putting it together in the same press release, all of that makes me really uncomfortable. And I think we need better guidance as to when politicians and when officials can't do that anymore. So if there was one thing that I wish that I could have had the foresight to spend more time on, it would have been job owning. Yeah, Ari and I did an episode on the job owning cases, and I believe the Second Circuit had a four part test that's getting some currency. And, and Ari and I, Ari, chime in here. We wanted to do better. We It would be great to have a test, but we couldn't come up with anything very good. Yeah, it's so context and fact specific that you're going to end up with a bazillion part test that is both wholly unsatisfying and impossible to apply in practice. Um, don't know what to do other than doomsay it. But, you know, maybe there are people smarter than you and I out there. Perish the thought. Well, I, I commend you, Jeff, because one thing I see in the academic milieus that I think all three of us travel in, and this is a natural human tendency, by the way, I'm not meaning to really kick anyone in the shins here, but letting the partisan valence of the dispute that's right in everyone's face cloud judgment about the underlying principles. So I've been impressed as I've listened to you on other podcasts talking about this case, sort of keeping your mooring and discussing the case with the proper skepticism about the government job owning. I think there's been a tendency among people who maybe are often more pro First Amendment. I found myself even personally doing this on our episode on it, going, uh, you know, it's tinfoil hattery about COVID. So the government is just uh, combating, you know, nutters during a pandemic and sort of letting the emergency situation and the political dispute blind us. And I feel like you have done a very good job of, of not doing that. So well done. The book has to shift from hot topic stuff of the moment to entertaining things about the book that you at the moment will only get from Jeff Kosev's book. It has all kinds of fun cases. You do very good research in finding legal disputes that illustrate your points that maybe are stripped of the political valence. I am thinking of M&M. I am thinking of falsely or learning about a relative's death in a newspaper. Um, mushrooms, mushrooms. Uh, some of these I think are probably going to fall by the wayside, and the listeners are just going to have to go buy the book to read about them. Could, could you share? You know, what was your what was your favorite case that you ran into while while doing this? One concept I knew I had to write about in the book was substantial truth, because I felt like you can't write about falsehoods without writing about a doctrine that says, okay, you can mess up a little as long as the overall gist or sting of the statement is correct. And there, there are a lot of like writing about city council member type cases, which were kind of boring. And I, uh, I remembered a case from a while ago about Eminem, and I, and I thought, okay, I'm going to look for everything I could get. And it was actually I had to 
deal with a lot of different very friendly court clerks in Michigan because I wanted to find more than just the opinion. Uh, and the reason why I remembered it was because the it, it was a case about um, a song called Brain Damage from his first mass market album in 1999, where he uh, taught he he rapped about being bullied at, in middle school. And uh, the reason why this led to a false light lawsuit was uh, for half the song he named the person who who bullied him and the person who bullied him was they were both in their 20s when the song came out and he was a sanitation worker in detroit uh who at first had said positive things about being named in the song but something happened and he sued eminem and he said okay well yeah i might have been part of a group that may have not been very nice to him but i did not do the things that he said and i mean some of the things he 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 recounted some very violent specific things that this uh that he accused this person of doing so the judge ended up dismissing the case uh after discovery and on summary judgment primarily because of substantial truth saying you know yes the song is not literally true but the general the the plaintiff actually admitted to the general gist of what happened so we're not going to hold eminem liable and the reason it got attention back in 2003 was that she wrote part of her opinion as a rap verse which it was interesting it, she ended up getting elevated to the state court of appeals uh so that worked out for her but uh, i was like i want to learn Maybe more about not appropriate but also surprisingly good yeah I, I i think it worked um and i thought you know i want to find more than just what's in the opinion so it took a while but i was able to get the record that had all of the depositions uh, including eminem's deposition which was very colorful um he did not seem like a particularly fun person to depose he was fairly hostile he would Imagine answer that. He, he would answer in one word and at times seemed like he might get violent with the attorney. I, I was waiting to see what, what would happen next. He did not, but um, he, and he, he, but he actually had some good explanations. He said, yeah, of course, some of this wasn't true, but he said, you know, I, I have to rhyme my lyrics and I've got, and I, I also said that my mother beat me over the head with a remote control until my brain fell out of my skull and that obviously did not happen because I'm here today and nobody believes it. And I, so I, I thought that was all really colorful um, and it was fun. I mean, I was looking at old court cases that his mother filed against the school district for him having been bullied back in the early eighties where he made the lawsuit named the same person. So that was just a really fun case um, in part, just because I got to read hours of Eminem's deposition, but uh, I think it also illustrated one reason why courts protect uh, false speech. So that that sort of thing, I, I like to go beyond the opinions and uh, really dig into the records. Which is true of all of your books. So everybody check out all three. You also have a textbook, I think, but uh, not for general public consumption. <laughs> Probably not. As we close out, Jeff, if you don't mind, I'd like to put you on on the couch a little bit. You've really stamped, put your stamp on recent debates around online speech, very relevant books, 
Uh, you produce them quite quickly. You seem to have a lot of drive to doing this work. And I'm sort of curious what gets you up in the morning with, with this stuff. I mean, I know you believe in the causes you write about, but are you sort of just getting interested in these issues and then you have a facility for working fast? Or are you like working around the clock on nights and weekends because you have this deep zeal for these First Amendment causes? You know, how, how do you see yourself in the space that you're operating in? Well, I mean, mostly it's fun. So, I mean, it's it's really fun to do this sort of thing. And especially when I get to dig into cases and look at aspects that haven't really been told before. I probably write far fewer law review articles than most law professors, but that's because I I know many would disagree, but I, I, I tend to agree with Chief Justice Roberts who questions the reach of law review articles and the impact that law review articles have. Obviously, there are some amazing exceptions, but there's also some that are read pretty much only by other law professors and not even very many of them. So, I mean, that that's one thing. I just think that you could, it, it's easier to have a bigger impact on the debate to write something like a book. I spend more time writing op-eds and posts for sites like Slate and Lawfare for the same reason. And also it is something I just feel passionate about. So I spent the first seven years of my career, both before and during law school as a journalist. And part of what I did was investigative reporting. And I faced a decent number of defamation lawsuit threats. I faced one threat to prosecute me in Texas, which was uh, eye-opening and very terrifying. So part of it is just having dealt all, all of those experiences, I think, shaped what I'm interested in and sort of my stance on some of these things. Jeff Kosseff, law professor, author of Liar in a Crowded Theater, but also to make this into a podcast about all three books, The 26 Words That Created the Internet and The United States of Anonymous, all three worth your time. Jeff, as we close out, I mean, that's plenty, but is there any uh, work you'd like to preview or anything that's currently on your plate or even just the next book that's currently nothing more than an idea in your head? Please preview whatever you would like. Uh, the next book is still very much in sort of the planning stages, uh, so I, and so that might change. And the next articles, when I talk about boring law review articles, I'm writing one about the efficacy of cybersecurity regulations. So I think if people want to go to sleep to that thought, that would uh, pro probably uh, do the trick. Ari, I think this is the, the quietest I've ever heard you. Do you have any closing thoughts? I usually say all the things that Jeff said, so I really haven't had to, to do much. But but Jeff and I have been uh, brainstorming this topic uh, on our own for uh, over a year now. And it's uh, been fun to see what it's all culminated in. So I'm just happy to be here. Well, I actually do have a review of the book that 
I'm not going to pump too much because I don't know, it'll come out when it comes out. But when I got my review copy of the book, I did go to the acknowledgements. And one of the first things I saw was that you were in there, Ari. So uh, props to both of you. It's, it seems like a good working relationship. It was alphabetical order, but uh, <laughs> but he all, regardless, you would have been at the top. You know what? I've been handed the unearned benefit of being at the top of alphabetical lists my entire life. So I'm going to take it. Yeah, I hear that. This has been so much fun. Thank you both. Jeff Kosseff, Ari Cohn, I am Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this one, please do go and subscribe. Give us that five-star rating. Do all the fun things that keeps us up in the feeds on all your favorite platforms. And while you go to that, I will get started on the next one. Thank you. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.